Hey, Collabers, I'm Ben Leroy. And I'm Jason Buckholtz. And you're listening to CollaboraCast. How's it going, Jay? Doing very well. How about you? I am doing okay to sort of quickly get into the weather here. We had this beautiful stretch on Sunday and Monday where it was in the 70s and then right off the cliff. And we're in the 40s. It's rainy. It's just it's just fall taunting you saying, oh, if you think this is bad, wait until winter shows up. You better respect me in my 40 degrees and my turning leaves and mess. Yeah, this is always a time of year that I struggle with. There's there are the warm fall days when there is still the possibility of thunderstorms. And there is something beautiful and energetic about thunderstorms during the Halloween season. It's, it's really, it's pretty amazing, but I don't want to get too attached to them because I know that it's a fleeting thing and that it will disappear. And then I'm just going to be bummed because it's going to be oh, four to five inches of snow tomorrow. Ha Hope you like living in the upper Midwest. What's the weather like there? It is a lovely fall day, a little crisp in the morning, um, fairly warm. I just went out and had some lunch with my sister and it was t-shirt, t-shirtable. I did have kind of a, a crazy weather situation transpire over the weekend though. What was that? I, I went out on, so there is a, out of Point Reyes, which is national point race national seashore it's a big it's like a triangular shaped chunk of land that sits off of marin county it's this massive national park um and i would call it a peninsula but it's it's there parts of it are it's kind of like a peninsula and another peninsula stuck together and it's interesting because it's on a it's on a different tectonic plate than the rest of california and it's moving northward while the rest of the state is moving southward. So there's this chunk of land that is riding up the coast of California um, that doesn't have anything to do with the weather this last weekend, at least not that I'm able to discern. But it was, that, so there's a little bay, there's a bay called Tamales Bay that sits in between Point Reyes and the mainland. And you can get these algae blooms out there, these bioluminescent algae blooms. So my plan was to go out there and this is, would have been the second time that I went out there to try to see this through my kayak on top of my car, went out there, was planning to wait until dark and then get out on the water and see if I could. And it was also a new moon. So, um, you know, this was a weekend. I had the, the time and space, the conditions were going to be just right, but then all kinds of wind kicked up. And if you've ever done a lot of kayaking, kayaking by yourself in the, pitch black in shark infested water in heavy winds is ill-advised less, <laughs> less than advisable um so but before that my plan was to go out and do some hiking which i did and i got out there and i, I the wind was ferocious the wind coming off the ocean was intense and at one point I was walking out to the, there's nobody out there because why would you be out there? 
and I'm, so I'm walking out and there's, and the wind was coming in off the ocean so hard that the sand was, the air was just full of, it was like just getting sandblasted. And I had, I had a hat and I had my glasses and, and then I had, I was completely covered. My face was entirely covered and the sand was still finding its way into like the little cracks between my glasses and my hat. Um, but it was, it was from my waist down, there were just these airborne rivers of sand just flying through the air, you know, and I'm walking at a, walking at like a 75, 80 degree angle to, to keep moving forward. So I get through all this, you know, this sand filled wind and I get out to the ocean and the waves were coming in. And it was a very flat beach. It's a very gradual beach. And for some reason, the, the waves were full of sea foam froth. And as the waves were coming in, the wind was blowing all of the froth off of the layer of water so that the waves were coming in and then the water was sliding back, but then all of the foam was just sitting there. So the waves were bringing in these massive swaths of sea foam that would just sit there on the beach for a while. And then the wind would continue to buffet them and then they would just break apart. And then it, they would break into these balls of bubbles that would go rolling quickly up the beach and then disappear as they rolled. And so I just, it, and by that point I'm right on the water. So there's no more sand blasting me in the face. So I just sat, I just, I walked back and forth along this for ages and I took tons of video. I, like I, it's one of those things that you can't really capture on video. I took tons of video. I took tons of photos. None of them are any good. None, but like it, nothing turned out even like remotely capturing it. I, I tried time lapse. I tried slow motion. I, I got a couple. I'll, I'll send you a couple of things later, or I'll 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 put them I'll put them on the I'll put them on the the Collaborous Instagram now that I'm talking about them so everybody can yeah can, can see this. But um, I've never seen anything like that. There were just like these these huge swaths of foam, and then I'd just sit there, and then they would just sit there and quiver under the wind and then they would just suddenly break apart and then just burst all over the beach it was it sounds amazing it was amazing i've never seen anything like that and i walked i walked up the beach for a while and then there i found this shelter that somebody had built and i, I walked up to the shelter it was like made out of of planks and driftwood and it was a, like a pretty a good pyramid and there was a a, a crate in there a sealed up crate and i popped it open and there were a bunch of trinkets and there was a journal in there so i i wrote some notes about the about what i had seen what the conditions were that day and then popped the journal back in and did you ever do any geocache work in the uh in the earlier I, part of this decade I did, century I, I did yeah um my that's what it sounds like to me is that that kind of thing i remember a, an ex-girlfriend of mine and uh, I were out on hikes and she had a guide to all of that. So we were like underneath park benches and like on the inside of trees. And it was really cool and fascinating. And it was one of those things that was really magical in the moment. And I was like, I'm never not going to do this for the rest <laughs> of my life. I don't think I've done it since, but, <laughs> but it sounds like you hit up a, a cool spot that may be related. I don't know. Might be. Yeah. I've definitely found, I did come across a geocache, a very similar, it was in an ammo box. And this was, 
This was deep in the, it was in the forest of the Nicene, of forest of Nicene Marks, which is very close to Soco, where, you know, it was, it was. That's where we were going to go, right? That was one of my plans. We didn't have yeah. the time, but yeah, but I was, I was way back in the woods and I came across this and I, and I was near a waterfall and I, I, there was a log lying down that looked like a great place to sit and look at the waterfall. So I walk and you know, I'm off trail. So I go up this hill and I sit on this log and then there's this ammo box tucked in behind it. And I was like, it's like, either there's going to be, there's going to be something, either there's going to be something extremely awesome in here, or this is going to be the most horrifying thing that I ever see in my life. And it was, it was a geocache. It was a bunch of, you know, friendly notes and little items that people had left, but it was either that or like it was going to be someone's foot or something. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. yeah. It's going to get gnarly. And right yeah. now, this time of year, I don't know what time of year you did that, but if it was the Halloween season, there was that extra little bit of creepiness in the air, you probably would have been more inclined to find something that was like, yeah, this is this is that. I Sorry, my ego jumped in here because when I was thinking about what could be in there, I don't know if I ever told this story on the podcast. And if I did, dear collaborators, you can go ahead and fast forward. But when I was running Bleak House, I had met an author and I'd met an author at an event. I don't remember where it was, but I'd met an author in an event. And apparently I left a, a big impression on this guy. And so months later, I'm at my desk and I'm getting ready to eat lunch. And there is this big padded envelope that shows up and we would get submissions in you know, letter form and padded envelope form. And it looked like just another submission that was getting sent in and sitting down to eat my penne pasta and pull out this note. And it's like, dude, great meeting you. I've got a great book I want you to consider. And I'm giving you this present because I know that you'll dig it. And I was like, what? And there was this ball of paper towel right in the middle of the padded envelope. And I was like, what? And so I unpeel all of the paper towel and it's a raccoon skull. And I was like, not sure what I'm supposed to do with this or how you feel this would better your chances of getting published. But no. But I did then tape it to my computer that was back when you had big box computers so it was kind of like staring at me the whole time it was just a skull it wasn't like he had chopped the head off of something and it still had fur and stuff but it was just the skull or maybe so, he had and just yeah so back to things you might find in a random ammo box in the middle of nowhere the woods yeah i definitely there was some hesitation i was like i i have to open it I have to open it, but at the same time, I recognize that I could seriously regret what I'm about to do, but I'm, I'm powerless to stop. <laughs> but my inner seven-year-old is like, you got to power through it, man. Yep. You just got to. Curiosity did what to the cat now? <laughs> I don't remember the verb in there. There was something about curiosity in a cat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to remind people who are listening and who maybe didn't catch last week's episode, we are wanting to help people who are getting involved with a NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month this November 1st through the 30th. If you are participating in that, 
you are welcome to send an email to info at collaborist.org and we will set up a 15 minute call with you for free just so you have a chance to talk to somebody about what you plan on working on. And maybe there are some spots where you're a little bit nervous uh, that your plot doesn't hold up or your character isn't quite right. And you just kind of want to run it by somebody. You need a shoulder, you need an ear. We're here for you. This is just because we believe in the community and want to make sure that people get the most out of expressing themselves. So again, send an email to info at collaborist.org and we will find time for a 15 minute call, Zoom, phone, whatever, so that we can discuss it. And you can start NaNoWriMo at a running pace. And it starts on Tuesday, a week from yesterday. So yes, and depending I believe on when you listen to this. Yeah. yeah, the week, right. Um, starts Tuesday. And I believe that uh, the MO stands for month this year. So I think it's just one month. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot of lot to do in a month. Yeah. So having a good plan in place will definitely help to make those goals more achievable. There was one other thing that I wanted to discuss before we get to the meat of whatever the meat of this episode is. We I what I want to do is I want to point out something that I've been doing this kind of work for more than two decades. And I like to consider myself helpful and fairly knowledgeable about writing and books and publishing, especially the technical elements. But every now and then I have the joy of learning something that I didn't know about. And it's also humbling because it just reminds you that you can't possibly know everything. A few episodes back when we were talking about point of view, I said very definitively, because I knew for sure that there are four points of view. You got your first person. So that's I. I did this. I went hiking and found an ammo box and I opened it and I saw you have second person, which is rarely used, but that's where you, you're being directly addressed as you. So you went out into the forest, you found an ammo box, you opened it, you found a raccoon playing a violin. Then there is third person limited, which is just, and this goes back to our ultra cool head hopping video that we put up on the gram that I really do believe if there's a category for Instagram Academy Awards, we should probably get one for that because it was it was pretty awesome. But third person limited is where we aren't getting the eye of first person, but we are only getting one person. So Jason went out into the forest. Jason found an ammo box. Jason opened the ammo box. And if there are, if I'm with Jason, we never go into, oh, Jason thought to himself, should I open this? So that's the interior workings of Jason's brain. That's third person limited. You wouldn't, I would be in that scene. Jason and Ben walked into the forest. Jason thought, should we open this ammo box? But you never get my thinking and my thoughts. That's third person limited. 
third person omniscient, which was very popular 5 million years ago, and some people are still trying to sneak it in today, is where we just get whatever, everyone's thoughts, everyone's internal process. Everyone is the protagonist. Everyone is there. So those are the four things I thought about. Those are the four things that I was sure I would have bet a lot of money that I guess these are your four point of view choices. But last weekend, I realized that I was writing a scene. And then I was like, I think I can write this without getting into anybody's head. And that this the scene is only working through dialogue and action, but never interior thoughts, never interior monologue, no privy to someone's thoughts. And I was like, I can do this. And so I recorded this voice memo for Jason. And I was like, dude, I just made this discovery. And I'm like thinking about the Nobel Prize that I'm sure to win. And then I was like, how is it possible, though, that no one has ever thought of that? And then I looked it up and it exists. People, there is a fifth point of view option. And that is third person objective, which means we're not in anyone's head. It's just dialogue. It's just action, but it is no inner thoughts. So your friend Ben learned something new. And I thought, who do I want to share this with? It's you, Collaborist. I wanted to share that with you. And thank you, Jason, for uh, patiently taking both the, the voice memo that I left you and then the follow-up. Oh, wait, it does already exist. I have been doing this for a couple of decades myself and was also sure of the same thing that you were sure of and therefore also wrong about it. And this was the first that I'd heard of it. Um, Ernest Hemingway knew about it and used uh, it in Hills Like White Elephants, which I just discovered okay. 20 seconds ago. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> um, Any other historically famous relevant examples? Uh, Hills Like White see. Elephants is a short story, right? That's not a novel? I don't know. I okay. Just... I don't know that you could sustain it for a novel, but I think you could sustain it for tens to twenties to thirties of pages. And you would have to be super efficient and skilled to do it in a way that keeps it interesting and fascinating. Yes, that feels right to me. Um, having thought about this for all of a couple <laughs> of hours total, maybe somebody could pull off a novella, maybe. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't, um, I'm not familiar with that Hemingway work. Um, I'm very curious about it now though. Um, is I is think, live internet searching, does that make for a good podcast? Yeah, I'll entertain the people. I'll, <laughs> I'll work through some of my, my material over here. While Jason does that, I wanted to point out to people that when I was in California for two weeks, I was convinced, as I am every single time I go to California, that I was going to experience an earthquake. And I think we even talked about it on an earlier episode of the podcast. And I was so sure of it. And then it didn't happen. But now I'm home in Madison and it happened today. The area where I was got a little 5.1 on the Richter scale, which feels like, 
about where I would like to come in on my earthquake experience. I don't need like the your fantasy, earth, your fantasy earthquake theme yeah. park. Experience. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, okay, that was cool. That was a little benign little earthquake. Little, some trembles for that. Mm-hmm. Some tremors. All right, what'd you find out? Um, I d- was not readily finding much else, and it started to feel like I'm not good at chewing gum and walking at the same time. So I just came back to talk about earthquakes. So, <laughs> so if there's anyone out there that wants to be the behind-the-scenes production assistant who can take care of these details and then... Uh, off camera deliver the the facts that you're looking for are that Ernest Hemingway like that person uh, if you can both agree to do that job for free and figure out how to do the technology we're we're all about it putting putting up with us would be the third <laughs> yeah <laughs> putting up with a lot of nonsense would be the third job shenanigans and whatnot <laughs> all right what else do we have to talk about today uh, we got a listener question. Awesome. About cover art. Um, mm. Their question was about where it comes from, who designs it, what kind of input goes into that. Um, and as much as the old adage would not like us to judge books by their covers, we definitely do that, literally. We definitely do. It's the case in my experience that the publisher, I I can say this is fairly universal. Any publisher of a certain size, and that goes from big four, big five to uh, independent presses that are established in the marketplace, they are taking care of the cover art. They either have an in-house team that does it or they're working with a group of freelance cover artists who are familiar with the company, with the company's previous offerings, the style, the atmosphere, the energy, all of those things. They're working with the publisher and the author to figure out, is this a standalone novel or is this part of a series? And if it's part of a series, how do we incorporate that branding here in book one that will show up in book two and book three so that when you're looking on your shelf, you're like, oh, that's... Uh, a detective earthquake mystery. I think that it's always for the best when, in general, publishers design a cover. That said, I have definitely been a part of process where the publishers, designers have gotten things very wrong and you have to go back to the drawing board. The publisher is working with the sales and marketing people to figure out what's hip in the industry right now, what, what's doing well, what are the covers that you can kind of mimic stylistically that are going to help get your book on the shelf, get that some face out time. Uh, I have definitely, what's on way too many occasions. For those of us who haven't heard that phrase. What, what was the question? Face out time. You said, you oh, should, uh, just, book just like when time. it's at the bookstore, instead of seeing the spine, you're actually seeing the cover because the bookstore is like, oh, this is a beautiful cover. And, and also sometimes you're paying a bookstore so that your book is face out and you're, you're seeing it. So the cover is face out. Or if you're uh, me, you just go to the local Barnes and Noble and do it yourself. Yeah. 
absolutely comes out <laughs> if if they if, if they made that a crime you wouldn't be the only person who had to go to prison for that one there are a lot of people who have done the old gorilla uh, i'm gonna do a little marketing here i have received way more than i should submissions where people are like oh yeah and i've already designed a cover for my book so you don't have to worry about that and it's sloppy ms paint work done by somebody's eight-year-old uh who isn't particularly artistically gifted and it's like no no you know i'll, I'll have the people be like well my grandson's real good with the computers and he came up with nope that's also not acceptable it's an art it's an art to design a book cover and a well-done book cover isn't something that just gets slapped together by somebody in in their home office. It just isn't. Not only is it an art, it is, it's also a technical skill. It's a it's a design skill, and you have to have both. And yeah. a a to hire a freelance book designer that's going to do a good job, that's going to put together a cover for you that isn't automatically going to say you know, this is a budget self-published book is going to cost a couple thousand dollars. So, it, you know, you think about what goes into that, the amount of time, the amount of knowledge, the amount of experience, the amount, like you were saying, being aware of what industry trends are, being aware of what is, I don't even know. I don't know what goes into it, but it's, it's the difference between a, $500 book cover that you hire someone off of Craigslist to make and a $2,500 book cover, you can tell the difference immediately. Yeah. Which is also a great opportunity for us to plug uh, Two-Face Design for the beautiful covers that Two-Face Design is doing. That was someone that I used at Bleak House and at Tyrus, and I know is used by publishers still to this day. Also designed the Collaborist website. So I just want to put a big plug in there because when you have someone who is a skilled cover designer who understands, who gets it right early on, who listens that's a that's a thing that you hold on to. The the process too that I wanted to go through is that an author will put together key terms that these are things that I feel are important to my book and what is the mood and what colors do you feel and what tone and you hand all of this information over to the designer and then the designer works from there and the cues that we give and there's the book description, but the cover designer rarely, if ever, is actually leading the book before designing the cover. And I know that that is something that authors wish happened differently, but it just, it's not an efficient thing. It's just the machinery doesn't work that way. In my later years, we would use Pinterest and I would work closely with the author to say, let's find some covers of existing books that you love, that you feel capture something. Maybe you like the font. Maybe you like the color palette. Maybe you like the percentage of image versus text, et cetera. And we would create 
a Pinterest board that had all of these covers that we agreed both fit the book and, and we loved or we could articulate what we liked and then pass that to the designer. And that was more helpful because if you just say to a designer, go design something cool. Okay. <laughs> go design something that's cool and works as a cover for this particular book. That's a different thing. I wish I had a, a horror story about cover design because I think that those tend to be quite illustrative, but my own my own story, I, I could not have imagined it going any better than it did. And I, I don't remember if we did the Pinterest board. I think I don't recall that. So I think we didn't. But I do remember that there was that I felt very included as a part of that process. I remember finding imagery online. I think I still have a folder on my laptop with the original images I pulled off the web. Um, sent those to the designer and and just had some basic basic ideas and and what they were able to put together like I took one look at it I was like yeah that's exactly what I was thinking and that looks great um, yeah that's exactly what I was thinking but never could have executed myself to right that right yeah 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 I'm learning so, that with yeah. painting I see things I'm like I want to paint that and then it's like okay paint it and then I paint something and I'm like that doesn't look it like it at all. <laughs> <laughs> not not even a little bit. The, a lot of things in between there. The other thing that I just want to say is that Jason's experience, and if you were working with me back in those old days, I very much wanted to include authors in the process of designing covers. But it is the experience of many people that it's out of their hands and they don't really have a say in it. And there are times where a publisher would be like, here's your cover. And an author will say, this looks nothing at all like what should be the cover of my book. And then the publisher will say, mm -hmm, here's your cover. And it's not up for debate. It's not up for negotiation. If you are in a point where you are working on a contract or if you're agented, your agent will already be doing it. There are things, there's language to put around uh, consultation on cover, which means that at least you're being part of the conversation. Even if they ignore what you say, consultation is there. Or approval, which is a much rarer thing. But I guess if you are an author of a certain level, you can probably do things like work approval into it. So I don't want people to say, well, but Ben said that all of this long process and involved process happened. Ben did that because Ben felt and still feels like that's the right thing to do. But Ben is no longer running a publishing company and doesn't have... Uh, doesn't have sway over the whole industry. And, you know, to be fair, definitely I've participated in conversations with authors who shouldn't have had much input in their cover and did make it unnecessarily difficult. And if I was somebody who was running a publishing company and I had to worry about deadlines and I had to worry about sales and marketing and I had to worry about those things, I'd probably just say, here's your cover. And, and that's, that's it. I was prepared for something more like that, given what I had heard about traditional publishing and, and all of the freedoms I was going to be relinquishing when I signed on the dotted line. But I was I was very pleasantly surprised. I, I did get I did get that. I think it was from you when when the rights for the audiobook were sold or whatever, whatever the machinery was that brought the audiobook. And I said, oh, I would. I would love to read that myself. I would love it. And you said, no, that's, 
Yeah. <laughs> you or whoever's like, no. No, that's not, yeah that's not gonna happen and there was no yeah. like oh let me see if i could put you in touch with someone and yeah. it was just a yeah no no do do you plan something else with the rest of your day and yeah my power my power was even more limited there because that's going to a third party and they really don't care what ben thinks about stuff i i have to admit I am sure that I can read my own work better than anybody else. I just know how it's supposed to be read. And I, I worry. I worry about the day when I finish writing this six million word letter novel thing that it's going to be someone's going to be like, okay, great. We've got someone to do the audio book and I'm just going to, we got, we got Gilbert <laughs> Gottfried. Gilbert Gottfried's looking for work. He's gonna do it. Bob I have to say like... that as that 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 was a moment for me. That was like a, a little bit of a letting go. But to 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 conclude that story, the guy that read it did such a better job than I could have even. It, he did an unbelievable job, and I was like, oh, that's why, that's why that that was a no period end of discussion it was because there are there are people who do this professionally and who yeah, they're professional there. actors yeah scott o'connor had uh bronson pinchot from perfect strangers do the audiobook of his untouchable and i just remember thinking like okay yeah like there's an actual working actor doing this and their whole job is to know how to do this so maybe i should humble myself but I back in the Bleak House days, I remember we did this thing where we had people record the first chapter of their book and put it up on our website. This was before audiobooks were as ubiquitous as they are now. And there was one author in particular, when they read their work, I cringed so hard. I was, did, did you write this? You wrote this and you sound like this reading your book? Do you... Is this unfamiliar to you? I, I don't, I'm at a loss here. I don't know why this is happening. So it's not a guarantee that just because you wrote something, you can read something and, and be good about it. Well, I was, I was, I have, uh, this was some time ago and I have my audiobook on a whole stack of CDs. I that's, have, that's I have that same discs y'all <laughs> i have that same container of those same cds <laughs> yeah. now all i have to do is go back to 2006 and get my car that had a cd player in it and i'll be all set when the apocalypse comes and we yeah. have to rely on older media to keep us entertained we're oh, going to be grateful that we have the 45 cd set of a paper sun by jason buckles audiobook my 13 year old who loves music asked me a couple of days ago, it's like, what, what's an album? <laughs> it's like, Oh yeah, that's not the unit of an album is not really that relevant anymore. Yeah. But smash singles are. So it's just like an album is a collection. It is a herd of smash singles. It's what it comes down to. Playlists. Yep. I don't know that I have anything more to keep this episode rambling along. Do you, Mr. Buckles? I think we've grabbed the bag. I think we've emptied, <laughs> emptied the grab bag, bagged the grab, something. Yes. 
something indeed. Something Thank indeed. you, Collabers, for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, I don't mean to guilt you. I don't, seriously. But there's still only one review, hey, Stephanie, of the podcast in the iTunes store. And I don't know, but I think it would be pretty cool if we had two, three, five, ten reviews there, anywhere. I do want to shout out everyone who is watching on YouTube and subscribing. You are pulling your weight. It's the people over in the Apple place that are dropping the ball a little bit. But thank you to everyone who's watching the podcast on YouTube. Thank you for engaging in the comment section. Remember, if you're participating in NaNoWriMo and you want Jason or myself to chime in on your project before you get started, send an email to info at collaborist.org. And lastly, if you're a Patreon type, we are over there at patreon.com slash collaborist. For story? For community. <laughs> 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 Bye.